Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Now hear the word of the Lord, taken from Luke, chapter 19, verses 37, 38, read to you by a 90-year-old. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Stan, thanks for doing our reading. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord Jesus, you are our hero, our rescuer, our savior. We worship you, we praise you, we join the host of heaven and Christians throughout the ages and around the world today as we celebrate your first coming and we anticipate your second coming. Lord, as we enter this holy week, we pray that we are especially mindful of you and what you've done for us and the costly price that you paid that we might live with you forever. You're so precious to us. We just love you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask you to continue to help us to show forth our devotion to you during these difficult times, that our conversations wouldn't continue to naturally go toward things that are hard or difficult or a crisis or that we're upset about, but that our conversations might go more and more toward you, Lord Jesus, and magnify you. Lord, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May you speak through me now. May Christ be lifted up. In his name, we offer these prayers. Amen. Seventy-seven years ago, Stan, you were alive then, <laughs> and it would have been uh, 13 years old, I guess, on June 6, 1944, the largest amphibious invasion in military history occurred when 156,000 Allied soldiers landed on the coast of Normandy, France, in an effort to liberate the French from Nazi Germany. The fate of the world hung in the balance as Nazi Germany's Adolf Hitler, with his extreme racist policies, were bent on dominating the world. And before he was stopped, Hitler's policies would result in the annihilation of up to two-thirds of the entire population, Jewish population, in Europe. A tragedy. The amphibious landings on Normandy coast were on what was called D-Day, I didn't know what D stood for, so I looked it up. Those clever military, it stands for day. <laughs> so on day day, D day, <laughs> Allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of France at 0630 in the morning. The target was a 50 mile stretch of beach along the Normandy coast, and it was divided up into sectors that had code names Utah, Omaha, Gold. Juno and Sword. I'd like to show you the first picture of the men getting off their ship and landing on the beach. 
The men landed under heavy fire from the gun emplacements that were overlooking the beaches, and the shore was mined. It was covered with obstacles such as wooden stakes, metal tripods, and bobbed wire. Casualties were heaviest on the beach, codenamed Omaha, because of its high cliffs. And the first wave of soldiers experienced close to a 50% casualty rate. By mid-morning, there were more than 1,000 Americans lay dead or wounded on the sands of Omaha Beach. And as the tides came up, the wounded drowned. By the end of D-Day, there was a total of 4,114 Allied soldiers that were confirmed dead, wounded, or missing. I want to show you picture number three. This is the American cemetery where the Americans are buried along Normandy coast. And there are as many as 54 pairs of brothers buried there. I misspoke a minute, a minute ago. There were 4,414 soldiers confirmed dead, and casualties were 10,000 men. It was the bloodiest single day in U.S. military history. But this was just day one of an operation that would go on to last for two months, an operation called Operation Overlord. And by the end of the campaign, there were more than 200,000 dead, wounded, and missing allies, more than 300,000 Germans who were dead, wounded, or missing. In addition, the French civilians suffered 12,000 casualties. It had been a deadly plan. And yet, Operation Overlord was a stunning success. By early September 1944, all but a fraction of France had been liberated. The U.S., British, and Canadian forces had occupied Belgium and part of the Netherlands and had reached the German frontier. The coming winter would bring much hard fighting and the defeat of the German army in the West. The deadly plan saved the world. Death was the path to life. We're in a three-part mini-series entitled Death, the Path to Life, and we've already talked about the deadly choice, and today we're talking about the deadly plan. When the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, made that deadly choice to disobey God, they not only killed themselves, but they quite literally plunged the earth into, into ruin and destruction and caused the death of every human being who would ever come after them. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 makes this clear. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, and by the way, Adam's name in Hebrew means man, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. It was a deadly choice to disobey God. It killed the human race. But immediately after Adam and Eve committed that deadly choice, God came up and explained the deadly plan. And it was a plan to provide a Savior, to provide His Son, who would die that we might live. Death was the path to life. France is free from Nazi Germany today because of the sacrificial deaths of Americans and their allies. And if you meet an older French person today, they are still grateful to Americans 
for what they've done to rescue them. The Bible, oddly enough, doesn't tell us much about Adam's life, even though he lived almost 1,000 years. It points out his monumental failure, and it points out God's miraculous fix. And the fix was not simple. It wasn't easy. It wasn't deserved. But God wanted to fix the world. And so he came up with a deadly plan, and he spared no expense with this plan. Which brings us to our first admonition this morning. If you're listening online, there's an outline on the PDF icon. If you're in the room, there's some outlines by the door. Two things. First one is this. Number one, don't underestimate. Don't underestimate God's determination to rescue you. Don't underestimate God's determination to rescue you. I don't know what you're going through right now. Well, I know some things you're going through right now, but I don't know everything you're going through. But whatever it is that you are dealing with, whatever it is that right now you wish you'd be rescued from, don't underestimate God's determination to rescue you. He has a plan to rescue you. I don't know if you ever thought about it before, but God did not hesitate. He did not vacillate. He didn't have to take time to meditate on what to do after Adam and Eve made their deadly choice. After they ruined everything, God immediately announced his plan, the deadly plan, to rescue mankind. God already has a plan to rescue you whatever your situation is. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to worry about it. He has a plan, and he may not implement it right away, but he already knows how to rescue you from whatever it is that you're dealing with right now. And God's rescue plan for Adam was nothing like Adam could have expected. Don't underestimate God's determination to rescue you. I find it interesting that the Bible gives us no indication how Adam and Eve responded to God's plan. We are given what is called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first good news in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's given immediately after they made the deadly choice. It's a deadly plan. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as we saw last time, God's plan is kind of cryptic. It says that woman's seed... Well, women don't have seed. Men do. And so this is a reference to Jesus, the virgin birth. And it says a woman's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. Well, that refers to the defeat of Satan. But the one who crushes the serpent's head, Jesus, is going to have his heel bruised, referring to his crucifixion. And that is the first gospel message. And how well Adam and Eve understood that, or whether they came to understand it later, we don't know. We know almost nothing about Adam other than he sinned and he had sexual relationships with his wife. (laughs) He had Cain and Abel, he had Seth, he had other sons and daughters, and he followed the command to populate the world, which is good for us. And although I've always expected that I would see Adam and Eve in heaven, and when I did, I'd be like everyone else and go, oh, so you're Adam and Eve. I've always expected to see them in heaven, but we don't really know how they responded to the gospel. The scripture doesn't say. But long after Adam and Eve lived, God revealed his plan very clearly to a man who lived in the 8th century 
B.C., 700 years before Christ, a man by the name of Isaiah, a Jewish prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we have one of the clearest descriptions of the deadly plan given in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we read, beginning in verse 3, these words, speaking of Jesus. And keep in mind, this is 700 years before he was born. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs, that can also mean sicknesses, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Speaking of the piercing in his hands, in his side, in his feet, as his crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's going through this because of your sin and my sin. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And we know that Jesus was scourged. He was whipped with a whip that had iron balls on it and pieces of sharp metal or, or bone or something in it that ripped open his back. He could often cause death. The Romans weren't limited to how many times they whipped the subject. They whipped until they stopped because they were tired. And that happened to Jesus. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's certainly true of us. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The sins in the entire world have fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. And we know that Jesus remained silent against certain accusations. Verse 9, skipping down to verse 9, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men. That refers to his crucifixion. He had a thief on either side of them. Their bodies would normally be thrown on the, in the dump. But it says, yet with a rich man in his death, after he died, they put him in a rich man's tomb, Joseph Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. A very clear reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Sadly enough, Isaiah 53 is never read in Jewish synagogues. According to the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi, rabbis used to read Isaiah chapter 53 in the synagogues, but the chapter caused, and now I quote this historian, the chapter caused arguments and great confusion. <laughs> So the rabbis removed it from the yearly cycle of readings in the synagogue. So today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, they will, in their readings, read up to chapter 52, the middle of 52. Then they'll break for the week, and when they come back the following week, they will start with chapter 54, totally skipping chapter 53. And if you were to ask a rabbi today, he would agree with you or agree with me, that they skipped chapter 53, but he'd give another reason, they'd give another reason for skipping it, something like, well, we can't read all the scriptures that are in the Old Testament. They've been deceived. You see, not only should you not underestimate God's determination to rescue you, but secondly, number two, a second admonition, don't underestimate Satan's determination to deceive you. To deceive you. Don't underestimate Satan's determination to deceive you. He's deceiving you, me, and the world. 
So I might ask you, please don't answer out loud, but how are you being deceived? And if you're here and think, well, I'm not being deceived, then you're really deceived. (laughs) On that first Palm Sunday, the day we commemorate today, Jesus came to the rescue to the Jewish nation, and they were deceived by the devil and rejected him. Let's look at the account in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 37. And it says in Luke 19, verse 37, And he, Jesus, as Jesus was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Keep in mind that Jesus had been going from city to city doing miracles. That people in the entire city would be healed. That people would bring others, family members, and friends And all who needed healing were being healed. They had seen an incredible amount of miracles. Too many to even record in any books. And the people were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some people will tell you that this is a fickle crowd because on Palm Sunday they're praising Jesus and then later in the week they're shouting for him to be crucified. But we have no idea that that's the same group of people. This might be a very sincere group and may not be the same group that called for him to be crucified. We don't know. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. All of creation gives God praise. And when he approached He saw the city and wept over it, the city, Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish nation, saying, if you, and the word there is singular, so he's referring to the city, had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The city, Jerusalem, the nation, has been deceived. They've been blinded. They don't know. They can't see. They don't understand that their rescuer had come. For the day shall come, Jesus says, upon you, the city, when your enemies, referring to the Romans, will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Less than 40 years after Jesus said that, the Roman general Titus would lead his army and they would go in to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But the city of Jerusalem had three concentric walls around it. So instead of losing his men by the men trying to storm the walls, he built a fourth wall around the city, and they built it within three days, and they ended up starving out the residents of Jerusalem, all as Jesus had predicted. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Flavius Josephus, the first Jewish first century historian, tells us that the Romans burned the Jewish temple and the gold that covered the walls melted and went in between the cracks of the large stones. So the Romans dismantled the temple stone by stone to get to the gold, just as Jesus had predicted, because the nation of Israel had been deceived and didn't see the time of the visitation of their Messiah. Don't underestimate Satan's determination to deceive you. 
God's deadly plan to send Jesus was illustrated in all the animal sacrifices that the Jews offered in order to have right standing before God. It was a deadly plan, one that was visual, one that was graphic. And annually, the Jews celebrated what they called the Passover. The first Jewish Passover began in 1446 B.C. when Moses led the nation of Israel out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. And on that night, God said, sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorframe of your house. And when the angel of death comes and sees that blood, he will pass over your house. But if you don't have that blood, he will kill the firstborn of your house. So the angel went through, and when he saw the blood, those homes were spared, but the other ones lost their firstborn. And the Jews have been celebrating the Passover ever since. One of the tragic ironies of Jewish history is at the very same time that Jesus was presenting himself to the nation of Israel, Jesus, who was called by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, at the very time Jesus, the Lamb, is presenting himself, being betrayed, being whipped, being crucified, the nation of Israel has gathered in Jerusalem to sacrifice the Passover Lamb. And Josephus tells us, in one particular year, there were as many as 256,600 Passover lambs sacrificed in that celebration period. And as the blood of the lambs flowed, so did the blood of the true lamb, Jesus Christ. And yet the people were blinded and couldn't see who Jesus was, the fulfillment of the very ritual that they were performing. Don't underestimate Satan's determination to deceive you. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about how Satan deceives and blinds unbelievers. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he says this. 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose eyes, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Deception by the devil to keep people from knowing and seeing Jesus. Satan is deceiving people in all areas. Right now, we have people believing in extremes, whether it has to do with racism or mass or vaccines or police or whatever it is. Well, you know not everybody's right if they're in extremes. In fact, everybody could be wrong. People are being deceived to think that racism isn't a problem. And people are being deceived to think that racism is a problem causing everything. Satan is deceiving people to think that marriage is not between one man and one woman into thinking that you can have a combination of people and a combination of genders and any number of people, and that's marriage. And if you believe that, you've been deceived. But lest we become proud 
and self-righteous, pointing out how other people have been deceived and unbelievers have been deceived, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11 that we as believers can be deceived. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writing to the church, and he says, verse 3, But I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Friends, false teachers don't have name tags that say false teacher. Just because a pastor says it doesn't mean it's true. No wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. One of the things that history is going to look back on after the pandemic of 2020, one, two, I don't know how long it's going to go, <laughs> but one of the things history is going to look back on is how the church navigated the pandemic, how we handled it. What will we be known for when this is over throughout history? And the Apostle Paul says, don't be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If the church isn't known after this pandemic for its simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, then we have failed, and we have failed the world, and we have failed Jesus Christ. I'm not sure Jesus really cares what your view is on masks, on vaccines, on conspiracies, but I know he cares about your devotion to him. Don't underestimate Satan's ability to deceive you. And you're thinking, oh, not me. Well, are you better than the Apostle Peter? <laughs> the Apostle Peter unflinchingly gives the clearest declaration of who Jesus is, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Hero, the Son of the living God. And right after he says that, Jesus tells him the deadly plan that Jesus is going to be taken and arrested, and he's going to be killed, and three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And Peter is deceived by the devil himself and rejects God's plan. Matthew chapter 16 gives us this terrifying event. Matthew 16, verse 21. In verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. That's the deadly plan. It's been the plan since Genesis 3.15, since Adam and Eve made their deadly choice. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Where are your interests? Are they set on God's plan? 
Don't underestimate Satan's determination to deceive you. I would challenge you to do what I challenge myself to do and to get on your knees and ask the Lord where you're being deceived. And if you don't think you're being deceived, you're deceived. <laughs> As you history buffs already know, the main reason that the German army had failed to repel its enemies on D-Day was because Hitler and his generals had been incredibly deceived. The Americans, the British, and their allies had constructed a huge fake army consisting of 1,100 men known to them as the Ghost Army. And the purpose of the Ghost Army was to lure the Germans into focusing on another possible landing site in France rather than the real one at Normandy. The Ghost Army was complete with inflatable tanks. Someone after the Saturday service showed me a picture that he'd taken when he was in Washington, D.C., of one of these huge inflatable tanks. The Ghost Army was complete with inflatable tanks, rubber airplanes, sound recordings to round out the illusion. To lend credibility to the deception, General George S. Patton, a top field commander, was put in charge of the unit. They had dummy landing craft made out of scaffolding, wood, canvas, and empty 40-gallon barrels. Very convincing when viewed from a distance and from the air. They had a large number of dummy tanks and vehicles deployed all over southeast England to simulate an army ready to go on the move. At the same time, there's a huge volume of fake radio traffic transmitted and received by fixed and mobile units across the southeast England. The Ghost Army was tasked with convincing the Germans that the invasion would come at Pas-de-Calais, 150 miles northeast of Normandy, and directly across the Strait of Dover, which was the shortest distance for them to travel. The most logical choice for an Allied invasion. In the build-up to D-Day, Ghost Army operations successfully fooled Adolf Hitler into believing Normandy was not the primary landing site. As a result, German forces were low in Normandy, and thus the deception was successful. And the deception led to the Germans' defeat. God's deadly plan is to rescue you. Satan's plan is to deceive you. I strongly suggest that you and I follow God's plan. Let's not be deceived. Let's stay committed to the simplicity and the purity of our devotion to Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a private moment, even if you're watching online. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your hero, as your savior from sin, you've been deceived. And if you recognize that today, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, if you want to be saved eternally, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to spend the rest of your life in heaven with Jesus, call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe, please save me. Lord, as believers, we pray that you'd show us where we're being deceived by the enemy so that we might live lives that show that we have a pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us.
to exalt you, to praise you, to live for you, to share you, we pray in your beautiful name. Amen.